Hey, this is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to Y Combinator's podcast. Today's episode is with David Wallerstein and Anu Hariharan. David is Tencent's Chief Exploration Officer, and Anu's a partner here at YC. So just a quick reminder before we get going, if you haven't yet subscribed or reviewed the podcast, it'd be awesome if you did. All right, here we go. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you so much, David, for being here. Uh, I want to introduce uh, David Wallerstein, who is the Chief Exploration Officer uh, at Tencent. Uh, David joined Tencent in 2000 uh, when the company had only 45 employees, and today you have about 38,000. I believe so. Um, yeah, we'll have to check with our head of HR, <laughs> give or take a thousand, thousand you know, okay. something like that, a few thousand here and there. Well, it is clearly one of the world's largest internet companies, as well as the largest gaming company in the world. Yeah. Uh, and as many of you know, Tencent is the, also the creator of WeChat. Um, so thank you, David, for joining us today, um, and also for speaking at our private event. Um, yeah, for I just, YC, anything. Thank you. Um, so let's go back to even pre-2000. You know, you grew up in the U.S. What took you to China? That's a very long answer, and I'm going to try to make it short. But um, it it kind of relates to my work today. I was always um, pretty deeply concerned about the world and trends uh, in the world. And I felt that um, going back to, I guess, the early 1990s as a student, um, studying global trends and studying global history, I felt China was destined to become um, a very important country that the economy was gonna continue to grow. It had been growing in the early 90s, but uh, China was not a popular country for at least Americans back then, or at least myself, the way I viewed the world. It was kind of like on the side, and uh, other countries like Japan were a, a much bigger deal. And I actually had spent time living in Japan. For, you went to high school I in Japan. I went to high school there. Yeah. I was uh, an exchange student. I, um, I lived with a Japanese family, and uh, yeah, I, I, I was a Japanese person, basically, for the time I lived there. I've lived in Japan on and off for about four years. And uh, that made me very comfortable just speaking a foreign language, mm-hmm. an Asian language, and being the only non-Asian in the room has always seemed very natural to me, even since before I was 16. Mm-hmm. Um, but then uh, when I got interested in China, I kind of redeployed this skill set that I had developed to kind of survive in Japan mm-hmm. as a kid, which is like, you just have to learn the language super fast. So you went from Japan to China. Yeah. How, okay. you know, and I know you also talked about NASPERS sort of yeah. exploring, in fact, potentially acquiring Tencent, yes. you know, pre-2001. So okay. talk about how did you first yeah. come across? Okay, how, yeah, so I was doing management consulting in China. So take that all that background I told you about, and I ended up um, uh, having a passion for getting uh, foreign companies into China. Again, oh, the theme I was talking about with China is going to be very important for the rest of the world. I was thinking... The theme in my mind, uh, really from the mid-90s, was how do we help China integrate to the rest of the world? So China is a productive member. All the great international institutions out there work for China, as they do America and the other countries. And China is just part of our global um, Mm -hmm. community, right, in a a very uh, proactive way. And I thought the best way to do that would be to integrate the Chinese economy with the rest of the world and to accelerate that. So I was very interested um, in the 90s to bring... uh, U.S. companies to China. I was working as a management consultant, predominantly for like telecommunications mm-hmm. and what we called IT-related issues yeah. back then. This pre-internet, yeah. Yeah. right? And um, and then uh, I started uh, helping these different companies. And in 1999, very early, I think it was February 1999, I came across a company called Naspers, mm-hmm. who um, became my client. Uh, I was very young at the time; mm-hmm. um, it's like 20 something, 21 maybe. Um, and they wanted to um, enter China's internet market. And they had recently done a NASDAQ listing and had quite a bit of capital mm-hmm. to 
back their plans. Maybe it was like $100 million or something, um, which was a lot of money back then and still a lot of money today, right? So, yeah. so we started uh, working together to invest in different companies in China, um, social networking companies. Uh, we didn't call them that. They were like dating sites back then or mm -hmm. chat sites or blogging sites, although that wasn't a word either, posting sites. Um, I was very fascinated by these kinds of websites because they created a lot of traffic mm -hmm. and the users seemed to want to spend a lot of time there and that made a lot of sense It to was me. more like It wasn't page a trend views. back then. Yeah. yeah, it was about yeah page views and um, I, I was always interested to find engagement, like yeah. deep user engagement. But something happened when I was doing this kind of M&A investment type work, work for Naspers in China. Um, and that's that I noticed all of the entrepreneurs tended to use this tool called OICQ mm. at the time. And often they wouldn't uh, include any method to contact them like email or phone other than this tool. And one day it kind of hit me saying, wait a second, this seems really important. I was totally overlooking it. I was looking for websites basically. Mm -hmm. And instead I could see that like the whole Chinese internet seemed to be kind of connected mm -hmm. or somehow like structured by everyone's use of this tool. Um, we later changed our name to QQ in the year 2001, but yeah. in the year 2000, I um, had this idea that I should go down to Shenzhen, which seemed a little far for mm -hmm. us foreign type people back then. We were pretty much yeah. all living in Beijing and Shanghai. And that's kind of like where the hipsters used to all aggregate, Beijing, Shanghai, and we're having a great life there partying at night and stuff like that, um, feeling really good about ourselves. And, and, and we didn't really tend to get out of those cities very often. So I remember kind of feeling proud of myself getting on a plane to go see um, Pony Ma, mm -hmm. Ma Huateng, our um, co-founder. And, and there's a team of four, uh, five co-founders mm -hmm. uh, that, um, that started Tencent and running the company as the executive team. At the time, I went down to Shenzhen to go visit them. And that's where the whole um, relationship with Tencent started. Mm -hmm. It's middle of uh, around June 2000. June 2000. I went down there to, um, to propose to Tencent that we should try to acquire them. And what was their response? Yeah. Well, I had a lot of different kinds of meetings over the years yes. in China, to being a consultant, mm -hmm. and was pretty accustomed to um, having those meetings go well. Mm -hmm. Generally, people were happy to see me and uh, wanted to find a way to work yeah. together. Um, I think the Tencent folks pretty politely told me that it wasn't going to work out. Thank you for coming and goodbye. Yeah. And I was uh, kind of shocked. I'd never really had that experience quite in that way before. But in the meetings, it was clear to me that these were some of the smartest people I had ever met in my life, um, Chinese, American, whatever. Um, I was just completely blown away by um, how strategic they were mm -hmm. in thinking about their business, how, um, how realistic they were yeah. in having this discussion with me. Um, and I, um, I didn't want to just have the meeting end on a sour note. So um, I, you didn't give up, right? You actually yeah. ended up like Naspers led the investment in Tencent a year or two later. We did later. That's 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 the that's where things ended up. But um, but it started off pretty difficult. Um, ultimately, I felt like we had to demonstrate that we could bring some unique value. So I started. Um, well, first of all, I invited everyone to dinner, and we uh, proceeded to get. I recall things we got pretty drunk that night. I do not <laughs> recommend this for the children at home, uh -huh. but it did happen. Um, and, uh, and then the next morning I went back to the company just to see if there's anything we could do together. And I remember bringing in some ideas from the US, from the foreign market that, that seemed actually pretty interesting um, to Pony and the other guys. And, uh, and I said, that's it. I think the way to actually have a relationship here is to see what kind of value we could bring to Tencent from the outside world. And, um, and how could we help Tencent with expansion? 
um, even from those early days, like mid-2000, it was pretty clear that was going to be the basis of a viable relationship. Ultimately, um, it took about a year to buy effectively half of Tencent as Naspers. And, um, and really, the day after we signed the deal, I did a few things. Uh, but the most important one was I said, I'm moving to the US. Okay. So we're going to leave you guys alone entirely. And this wasn't just only my idea. Um, up to the, the top of NASPERS, everyone very much supported this kind of structure where, okay, we may have a, a meaningful share in the company, um, but to make this thing work, we absolutely have to never do anything to bother this company and be good shareholders and really get out of the way. Mm -hmm. um, and so to make that very clear, I moved to the U.S. really immediately. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I said, I'll be back in two weeks. And I did that for until maybe a couple of years ago. I was going back and forth between the U.S. and China, and were you like employee, every two weeks or so. When did you become an employee? Of yeah, that was June of 2001. Like really as soon as we signed the deal. Okay. Even before we signed the deal, I was spending a lot of time with the company. Mm -hmm. And we were, we were working together on different ideas to, to build the company. It was kind of like as if, like, I know this deal is going to happen. Let's not worry about these papers and documents yeah. and yeah. all this frustrating legal stuff. Let's just get to work. Yeah. You know, meanwhile, we're sitting around here. Let's build the company. And, and therefore, it was very clear what the relationship would be like after the deal, deal. closed because Got they it. know what it's like to work yeah. with me. Um, and then the other person who worked with me on the deal, his name's Charles Searle, he went on the board of Tencent. We're, we're still here to this day. So here yeah. we are. You know, we, we started the deal together 17 years ago. We're still doing it today. Yeah. Charles is on the board. I'm still um, on the executive team. And, and there's been this really wonderful um, continuity between Naspers and Tencent where the, the principles that I just described to you have remained true all of this time. And I, I think it's a great guideline in general for um, complex shareholder relationships, by mm -hmm. the way, for this may not be exactly the thing for the YC crowd right now, but it, it's, it's a model yeah, that could come up later for yeah. founders. You don't necessarily just have to go public or get acquired. There's this other model where you could potentially sell a big chunk of your equity to a third party and have this more nuanced relationship, which could actually be an interesting outcome because you could sell a lot of shares but still retain a lot of shares, and you can even ask for more shares over time, like more options and things like that. It's not unheard of. Um, but, but we actually find the model yeah, can work very, really well with the yeah. right teams. And we always thought this was, would be a very common model in business. And it turned out that there aren't so many of these types yeah. of deals being done. Yeah, um, it's a very unique model for yeah. that matter. In fact, like not a lot of uh, investments work that way even to this day in the US as we yeah. see with companies. I would love to do more of them, but yeah. it's hard to find that team that is willing to do it. And it's helpful if the company's profitable because then you know how to value the company going forward based on profits versus like just only user growth or yeah. some other metric. So, you know, it works better with profitable yeah. companies, but let it's me, a great let option. Me talk, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. So you joined the company when, in 2001, yeah. pretty much when they had only 45 employees yeah. and maybe just QQ. Yeah, that's Today, right. Today, Tencent to the outside world feels like they do a lot of things. They yeah. are also known as the biggest gaming company. Yeah. Uh, they also have WeChat, yeah. uh, probably one of the best messengers. Just one of many teams, teams. though, but it's an important one. But yeah, yes. there's so many teams. Uh, so talk about, you know, it's, it's broad from 2000 to 2017 is almost yeah. like, you know, I'm talking about 17 years, but yeah. how did you, what, you know, what, how did Tencent decide to evolve from QQ to all these other products? And what sort of motivated the decision making yeah. to move to these okay. areas? So um, it's a great question. I hope I can do justice to it. How do you cover, you know, 17 years in a few minutes, right? Um, there are a few important things to understand about Tencent that inform the product strategy. So when I first met the company in 2000, we had a, a couple of key things going for us. One was pretty much most all of the Chinese internet Mm -hmm. was inside QQ. 
So the strategic question for the company and, and us as investors, myself, you know, getting involved would be like, okay, we seem to have pretty close to 100% market penetration. Can we maintain that going forward? What could possibly make that go wrong? Mm -hmm. um, but we were starting kind of with the wind at our backs. And I think that situation was true roughly from early 2000. Um, the company, by the way, QQ started in February 1999. And QQ, and just for the audience, is it just like a, it's a messenger Well, chat? we started as a PC-based instant messaging service. So okay. think of it, um, I know the media probably makes too big of a deal of this because they always think Chinese companies copy everything, but they'll say it's the Chinese version of ICQ mm -hmm. or AIM or MSN Messenger, Yahoo Messenger. So Yahoo Messenger is the Yahoo version of ICQ, I guess. You know, But it, it was the IM client. Got that, it. It still has a lot of users today. Yeah. Um, and so uh, that was really... Um, Usually for a Chinese user back then, when they would get on the internet, they'd start their session with QQ. And often they were uh, logging in via an internet cafe, a shared PC. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, at the end of their session doing their stuff in the, the internet cafe, they would log off QQ. So our average usage times is the second factor. First was like having this ubiquity in the market, mm -hmm. like almost everyone using it. The second thing was they, the users would tend to stay in about four hours a day. So, four hours a day? Yeah. Okay. Like, like an average um, aggregated time for time a user. Spent. Yeah. Um, which is a long time. Yeah. Um, and, and so we started thinking, okay, uh, things could go wrong, but so far they're going really well. Yeah. Um, almost all users are in here four hours a day. So, so is the how four do we build... hours a day because they're chatting with someone? Or... Yeah, they're, they're kind of, they're, they're logged in and QQ is actually, it did two things. It did instant messaging and it did something called presence. Mm. And presence was basically just a way to indicate by lighting up your avatar if, uh, that you were online. So if you're offline, your, your avatar would be black and white. If you're mm -hmm. online, it would be in color. Mm -hmm. And that was very valuable back then because uh, people would want to talk to each other and be in touch with each other in real time. And you want to know if someone there or not. Mm -hmm. And then you could start adding subfields to presence. Like you could add a little, like a tweet kind of yeah. thing. Like I'm or really like, sad today. I'm really happy today. Got it. Or here, I just did this. Whatever. You know, like it's, it's kind of like the precursor to Twitter and all that kind of stuff bundled in with your messaging. Mm -hmm. um, all nicely packaged in this app. Okay. So that's how we started. So we, we, we faced this question. Um, we've got a great situation going. How do we continue? Um, what could get in the way? And um, we, we felt pretty early on the answer is like, well, we have to keep innovating and we have to really deeply understand our users mm -hmm. and what they need to anticipate the next thing that they want. Now, we did find something that worked really well in the early days. Um, from early 2001, we started doing mobile instant messaging, mm -hmm. what we call mobile QQ. Mm -hmm. And this is really how we went public on the NASDAQ in 2004, mm -hmm. was on the back of this mobile service which connected the PC-based QQ application to your mobile phone. So you could send a message between your PC to a mobile user and back and forth. Uh, to enable that service on your mobile phone, a mobile phone user would have to pay us five RMB mm -hmm. a month, about 60 cents. So. Um, if you didn't want it, then who cares? Yeah. You don't have it. But if you wanted to be able to, on the go, with your yeah. SMS, back to there, it was all feature phones, it wasn't yeah. smartphones. If you wanted to be able to text back and forth to QQ, you would pay us five RMB a month. And there were so many users on QQ, and this feature um, became sufficiently demanded that it really drove our financial performance right up to the IPO mm. in 2004. So based on this, it's important for everyone to know that we became profitable as a company in June 2001. Mm. And we've never uh, not been profitable since. Mm -hmm. So um, this is pretty much the time when Naspers closed the deal. They're closing a deal on a company that's profitable, cash flow positive, based on rolling out these mobile QQ services across the country. Mm -hmm. And we would bring the service to maybe Guangdong and it would have nice growth. Mm -hmm. Then we'd bring it to like another province like Hunan. And we're saying, OK, what's going to happen in Hunan? 
And the next day it's like, ooh, you know, yeah. get a big explosion of users. And it's like, great, now the, rev the revenue is coming in. And then it became really a battle in the first few years, 2001, 2002, to make sure we had ubiquitous presence across all of the mobile networks in China. China Mobile, China Unicom, so on and so forth. And, and each deal would drive more cash mm -hmm. for the company yeah. because the, the users were there. Yeah. So we had cash, we had profitability, we had this engagement with users, we had the four hours roughly yeah. plus minus on average in, logged into QQ. So, and I don't think I fully answered your question. People would do other things on the internet. They would just always have QQ logged in in the background and then they might go in and start having multiple chats with different people, sharing information, whatever they're gonna do. Um, but then they might also do other things on the internet. But QQ is just kind of always on the desktop, desktop. somewhere. So we, we felt like we had this latent opportunity. So we started to do more experimentation um, to, to drive products for our users, um, both for user value uh, perspectives and also like we had to make money because, our, okay, something to clarify, very different than the US market here, is that um, the ad market, from our perspective, has always been pretty challenging in China mm -hmm. compared to the US. And uh, particularly for us, we found our users did not like ads in their messaging experience. So they would go through great lengths to develop software and these kind of hacks so they wouldn't have to see the ads That's, in the software. Okay. And we felt like that was kind of endangering uh -huh. the user experience. So we did always have an ad team and we're getting much better at it. We have different kinds of inventory today, but the ads in the messaging window was never really a viable option for us. Unlike our friends at maybe like Google or you know, other companies, yeah. you know, they, they even Facebook. Yeah, they just driven these yeah. massive businesses. So how pretty, did you monetize that? Already? Right. So I want to make that clear because Tencent historically, like the rule of thumb, things are changing over time. We've traditionally made ninety percent of our revenues. That's like the rule of thumb historically in my mind from our users paying directly for our services, and we call them value-added services. Mm -hmm. And then the ten percent would be like ad-related revenues. And, and what the are mix these has been value-added services? Right. So uh, starting with uh, the mobile QQ service, mm -hmm. the five RMB a month. Got it. So, um, you know, uh, there we'll have very, uh, you know, hopefully strong, dedicated product teams thinking about nothing other than how can I get uh, users to convert to mobile QQ? Mm -hmm. What more value can I add? Yeah. Um, and these are subscription services, so you have to keep your churn rate very low. So you really have to understand why someone values it, and then what might cause them to leave, and then we have to build all these features around the service to discourage someone from ever wanting mm -hmm. to leave it. We want to have them uh, forever. That was the first uh, major value-added service of Tencent. And we launched something around the same time, which also grew pretty significantly, it would be kind of like our number two big service, which we call Premium QQ. Mm -hmm. So I was always kind of dumbfounded that um, we didn't really see many um, US companies build, at least our peers um, in yeah. social networking, build like a premium version of our service, especially when it's been so successful mm -hmm. and so important to our product strategy. Um, Premium QQ is kind of like how it sounds. It's just a better version of QQ. We have to put more types of value-added services in there. And in the early days, I remember a key aspect of Premium QQ was you could choose your own QQ number. Mm. What does this mean? Okay, so I have to explain these things. Yeah. It's a different market, right? Um, the QQ number before was your identifier. It wasn't like David at Tencent.com. Mm -hmm. That We didn't use email identifiers. We used an actual number. And we did that because we wanted to, to have the numbering system of QQ work with the telecom network. Got it. We never really pushed that far in that direction, but we always thought maybe the QQ number yeah. is your tel telecom number of the future, and it'll just map really nicely with the switches in yeah. China. Um, we did different things around that. It never really took off, but that was like the thinking, like numbers are better than names. Got it. Because you can just punch it into a keypad. Um, so you can choose your own. And in, and in China, numbers are very important. Mm -hmm. For example, um, some of the people watching may not know, eight is a very lucky number in China. 
So if you're going to deal with China, remember that eight's lucky. <laughs> yeah. If you got some eights in your phone, it's a good thing to have yeah. a phone number or whatever.、Um, it means fa、yeah. to get rich. I think you know, like prosperity.、Um, so if you're a, a, a user and you want to kind of stand out from the crowd, I mean, what young person doesn't want to have a little edge out there, right? Get some eights in your number, and then maybe when you show up in the chat room. Your name shows up in a different color, like a red color,、mm-hmm. and you kind of quickly establish yourself as a bit of a high roller,、mm-hmm. and you've you've kind of emerged from the crowd. So, the other thing I need to tell you is there was a lot of dating going on in QQ back in the day. I don't know what happens in there today. That's true for most social networks,、yeah, even in the U.S. Now, too. I mean, I think when Yahoo Messenger and、uh, you know other instant messengers that launched, I mean, there were rooms that were really dedicated, chat rooms、yeah. dedicated for dating. Yeah.、So. I'll definitely say that was probably part of the experience. Yeah. Not that I would know personally, of course, but I just heard from a friend of a friend of a friend that that's the case. So if you can kind of get an edge in such an environment by having a premium service、yeah. that gives you,、uh, you know, more status maybe, but in a fair way, and, and then more like kind of functionality, maybe we'd give you more storage space.、Mm-hmm. I know storage kind of like became less of a big deal、um, with, with Gmail and all those things、yeah. later on. But、uh, we would continuously be building out our premium services package to make it like the ultimate thing to reduce churn. And we'd have very,、uh, you know, dedicated teams, very committed to just thinking nothing、uh, about nothing other than the premium service package、um, every day of the year. Which drove know, also the monetization. Which drove the, monetization. Yeah. So these were kind of like I'd say really two of the key pillars of our monetization leading up to the IPO. But we had to diversify. So now I'm going to get into like the whole diversification discussion、yeah. because we felt as a pure IM company, doing mobile instant messaging on one side. That's like kind of you have like. PC in here, then you got like mobile kind of sticking off here, and then like this premium top of the pyramid here, like、uh, service, and maybe both are only getting like ten、yeah. percent of、yeah. your users. So of a hundred percent, you only get ten percent paying. We felt like as a company, we could just get taken out overnight by like we mentioned Yahoo Messenger,、yeah. MSN Messenger,、um, AOL, ICQ. In fact, we were particularly concerned about Microsoft. I think no discussion of Tencent's history is complete. Without a, a serious discussion about Microsoft, because around this time, 2001, 2002, I believe Microsoft did something very important for us.、Um, they bundled Windows Messenger into the operating system,、mm-hmm. so you would get your Windows PC, and all of a sudden you got Windows Messenger just、yeah. popping up. And we thought this is absolutely going to kill us. And they were—they're—I、uh, know they're a competitive company today. Back then, they really scared the hell out of us.、Uh, excuse me.、Um, It was it was scary times. So we figured, what can we do to be competitive against this kind of you know、uh, such a powerful like no resources or a limit type company like Microsoft?、Um, we we really did two things. We went very local,、um, and we started building more value-added services. So let me talk about the local part. We said, you know, our products may change over time. This really informed our strategy、mm-hmm. and the kind of customer engagement and. Product strategy software.、Yeah. We said、so、we, as our core value, we absolutely need to know our users better than anyone else、mm-hmm. in the world. We we have to, at the most fundamental level, know like everything we can about them in terms of their product preferences, what they,、um, what kind of features they like and don't like, what kind of colors they like and don't like.、Um, And how do you do that? I know Tencent, especially,、yeah. star is very unique for、yeah. really understanding the value of the customer versus just looking at metrics. In fact, you coined、yeah. the term CE, customer, yeah, customer engagement. Yeah. So, can you talk a little more about、Thank、how,、you. what methods do you use to really、okay. understand the customer? Let's dig into that, and then you'll have to remind me to do the the、This、product discussion、yeah. later. Okay. Yeah. 
I think it's something that's really about the people who run Tencent and the culture of the company. And it really goes to why um, caring about users really goes to why, why we exist. Yeah. And, um, you know, ultimately every business is established for some reasons. It's often not apparent to the employees sometimes or the users sometimes because you say this company just does X and I love X, but you don't really know why. And it's mm -hmm. often a very personal story or, or there's a personal journey that takes you there. I think for our five core founders, um, they, they always just struck me as being very, um, they, they care a lot about people. Mm -hmm. They're really people, people, people. And they cared a lot about China. Um, but, but you have to remember like in the 1990s, China was very poor. And in China was, it didn't have a lot of, people in China didn't necessarily have a lot of confidence that they could even build a good company or that the company could even have an international presence. Um, I spent quite a few years like trying to unpack some of those ideas because I felt they were false. But, um, you know, China came into the world having been totally cut off till 1978 and then like gradually kind of opening up and, and kind of trying to figure mm -hmm. out what's been going on outside of China yeah. for all these years. And now it seems crazy talking about that, but that's really where the world was like 20 years yeah. ago. Okay. So, I think you know uh, our founders really uh, were always very interested to spend time with the users online, like um, on the bulletin boards, responding to users directly, uh, responding in chat rooms or making friends. I mean, they were power users of QQ, QQ. Okay. themselves. Some of them might even be guilty of being power daters in there, like they're just mm -hmm. meeting people. They're like they're making the service for them. They're just as much users of the service as other people are. And they're inherently curious about people and very good natured. Mm -hmm. So I think what happened to the company is uh, it started with an idea, but it quickly became successful. And uh, we got a lot of traffic. And the way our founding team and executive committee responded to that was um, by actually feeling like a sense of responsibility for the users and, and a deep curiosity to figure out like what more could we do mm -hmm. and what do these people really want. And, Back in China, you know, you're just actually triggering a memory right now. Uh, China had a lot of fundamental needs then that are maybe surprising to people now because in like the late 1990s, early 2000s, there was almost no investment in private media in China. Mm -hmm. So all television, all film, most all the magazines, certainly all the newspapers, I think even to this day, uh, most of them, you know, were state funded. Mm. So you had this big gap um, with respect to like just private media, yeah. you know, by everyday people. And uh, there were so many services, it was clear that people needed back then just because they're human beings. They want to laugh. Yeah. They want to tell dirty jokes. They want to date. You know, they want to play games. Yeah. Um, we were filling in this gap. And I think, you know, as a, as a class of companies, the internet companies in China, this is the role we've played. We've really led the role of bringing private capital and entrepreneurship to media mm -hmm. and uh, connections and services for consumers in China. But it, it really filled a vacuum where there was nothing there before. And I think that was very much in the minds of our founders that this, this required, this entailed a lot of responsibility mm -hmm. if you're going to manage all these users. So, um, so when they were, maybe to tie it back to the local yeah. point you said. So yeah. how did they figure out what the local needs were right. to so, diversify? So, okay, like the methodology, yeah. right? And, and I love answering that question because it's a pretty simple one. Basically, um, from a pretty early point on, we, we knew that it's essential to understand our users as deeply as possible. And we should use basically any methodology that we can learn about to deepen that understanding. And um, we, we didn't settle on any preference for any kind of methodology because each situation 
seems to need its own methodology. But we got very fascinated by what we were learning about what was happening overseas. Uh, I remember I did a specific trip, probably in 2005 or 2006, to learn about um, things that like Intuit was doing, mm -hmm. called like Follow Me Home. Mm -hmm. Like how do you, how do you, how do you kind of go crazy with respect to like really getting into users' heads? And I thought that's that's a really cool idea. I can just remember that example very specifically. So we wanted to learn from Intuit and others. Like how do you do a a follow me home session? Like how do you actually um, work with someone? I don't know if you've heard about that, but like you can go mm -hmm. into their house and you can see. I want you. I want to watch you using internet services oh, in your home. Oh, got it. Oh, right? so pretty much. But like I want to see your home and I want to see like how it fits in yeah. to your life and. Maybe you're having an argument with a spouse on the side, or some kids yeah. just got home and the TV's on. And where's the computer sitting? Is it in the kitchen? Is it in the bedroom? Is it? And why did you put it in the bedroom? You don't have space. Is that it? Or like, you know, what's? We we wanted to get into the the deepest possible narrative behind the user's use of our service. We yeah. wanted to understand their entire lives, their their broader needs, like. Um, at, at the most fundamental level, and then how internet services were playing into those needs. And, and we started having very difficult conversations with ourselves. So if I, if I skip forward a little bit, a few years down the road, we built something called avatars. Mm -hmm. And the avatar service would grow for a while, then it would kind of like recede and have high churn rates, and we're kind of wondering why. And, and I think it was very important for us to ask these deeper questions like, why do people really like avatars? Because mm -hmm. you could have a service that's working, that's earning revenue and maybe getting a lot of recognition, but even the product uh, director, you know, the person who came up with the product, themselves, they weren't really very clear why people liked it. They didn't ask deep questions. They just kind of got lucky, yeah. threw it out there. People liked it, and you, and you kind of did new things, and some things worked, some things didn't. But we started going to a more fundamental level, really in the mid-2000s. Um, I think we always had the thinking going early on. Yeah. But we, we just, I think we've been getting better and better at these, like, they're the kind of deeper, almost existential questions. Like, like when you say people like avatars, it's because, well, they want to look better online. They're like, well, why do they want to look better online? Because they're meeting other people. Why do they care about meeting other people? You know, because they want to make friends. Why do they want to make friends? You know, we just keep going uh, down, down, down. Like the user's yeah. inner desire as yeah, to what's maybe motivating they're, Maybe them. they're lonely, ultimately, yeah. or you say they want affirmation. They, you know, everyone wants to feel appreciated. And, and so if you came to that kind of conclusion, if that was like the conclusion of the search, like everyone wants to feel appreciated, you would say, okay, interesting. How can we deliver a, a sense of, um, appreciation to our users through our product. Yeah. Like how can how can that be how can those values somehow be captured through the user interfaces and and the the structure of the product. And and maybe we don't even get that right and maybe we were wrong about some of our conclusions but we're constantly like trying yeah, to, iterate to iterate at that. So what was the next big thing that yeah. came after Mobile okay. you? Yeah. Thank you. So we did some of these services. I remember avatars probably came out around 2003. We built our portal around 2003. What we were trying to do, let me explain it yeah. <laughs> again. I'll, I'll get to the, the specifics, but at a strategic level, we wanted to offer, um, I, I thought about it, in my mind anyways, as like a spider web type configuration mm -hmm. of value. Here's what it is. You have QQ at the center. Then you have like mobile QQ here. You have premium QQ here. Now, if we can add something else, let's say it's like music. Mm. The question is, how can music not only add value between users in QQ, but also add value to mobile QQ, mm. have a premium QQ offering? Like, okay, if it's premium QQ, then maybe there's a new album that's going to come out yeah. next week that only premium QQ users can, can listen to for like two weeks, mm. something like that. And we constantly like find an opportunity. And then how can uh, the music service not just be about streaming music, but maybe the ringtones inside QQ, like when you send someone a message, the notification mm. could, could use the music service. It's like, give us any kind of resource and we'll try to find like the most efficient way to like distribute it intelligently 
in, in different kinds of iterations and ways throughout the network. And then you add something else. You have a fourth service and a fifth service. And then you're going back to the other ones and you're trying to like see how they're yeah. all going to strengthen each other. Like, so it's like an interconnected network. You're driving yeah. the value of all your services. Yeah, I mean, that's what we did as a company yeah. between users, is that yeah. you see how users are connected, and each one might have 150 friends, and then you get these like amazing relationship grids between friends. But we also kind of felt that way about the services and the value mm -hmm. them, themselves. I guess it's just habitual thinking, because we're always yeah. thinking in that mode. You add something new into the network, and how can it like basically, from a business perspective, a value perspective, connect to all the other aspects of the service? And what I found we did over time is we started to build like these really intricate webs of product experiences that like our competitors just weren't doing. Mm. And, and it's hard to replicate. And, and we thought this would be uh, very valuable uh, to differentiate us from other typical instant messaging companies. The more kind of value-added services we had around QQ and the more complex ways we could integrate them for user value, we felt like that would be very defendable uh, and be, be very unique yeah. versus oh. like other services where they, they might bring in music but like when, when another service brought in music, they might say, click this button and stream the music. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. Kind of sounds like iTunes, but you're could you done do a after more? listening like, to the music. Yeah, like yeah. how could you make that more interesting? And, so, and we would be challenging ourselves to do that and working with those product managers, like in the music team, to make sure they had that mentality, that they were kind of pushing the boundaries to say, how can I maybe work with another product team? Oh, got it. And, and, and where the executive team would often get involved. Because we have to do something other than just the general <laughs> managers. Like, yeah. what are executives supposed to do? Is like we're looking out for those opportunities. When are there um, disagreements? Uh, when is it that one team really wants another team to work with them, but the other team isn't willing to because of deadlines or they don't like the mm -hmm. idea? Our our goal would be like saying, what do like reduce the friction and come to f quicker decisions? Mm -hmm. Like, okay, you guys really should be working together. We've heard the arguments. Work together, kind of a thing. Or, yeah, this doesn't make sense. Like, okay, we totally get it. Yeah. Back down, you know, like kind of how do you decide when to accelerate a certain kind of integration or to, um, you know, to just let it go? Yeah. And then we have some, sometimes some okay ideas ourselves. We like, oh, we want the company to do this. Sorry, everyone, yeah. do this thing. Um, but really kind of driving that, that strategic integration between products. That was, th this is something that we established, I think, very early on, like 2002. 2003, we kind of really started driving these integrations. When we did our portal, I remember shortly after we have a like a CNN.com yeah. type news portal, um, we started doing these, what I thought were fantastic news updates in QQ. So when a major global event happened, you would just get a pop-up on your mm -hmm. desk from QQ. And that was another great example of the integration that happened fairly shortly after. And now I see it in like iPhone, you get these like yeah, news, news alerts updates, and things like that. Yeah. It's like, oh, kind of reminds me of what we did like back in 2003 with QQ. Yeah, almost so 14 years earlier. But I think yeah. that's very unique that you mentioned, which yeah. is it was not just about building different products. And even though it looks for the outside world that, you know, Tencent is, you know, has a lot of things. It's yeah. about that real integration across each of these products and services yeah. that increases the value. It's like an ecosystem of value. Yes. And it's like the question would be, how can music fundamentally like, uh, like transform the whole QQ experience, top to bottom and other value added services that we have, like, like the premium yeah. service. Remember that example yeah. I said, okay, yeah. there's new releases coming up. Maybe there's yeah. a concert coming in yeah. town. But because we work with the music label, we can inform them of the yeah. concert. And, and, and then also that premium group can be a helpful um, group for the, the, yeah. the music labels to work with, yeah. too, in some cases. So we're like constantly kind of trying to uh, drive these webs of value in all these different ways. And, and it, it becomes a thought process and an yeah. operating system for the company. Yeah. And I think we've become 
pretty good at it and it let us like scale and scale. And then so now if I just fast forward to WeChat, yeah, um, it's really hard for people outside of uh, China sometimes to understand WeChat. First of all, it's in Chinese, I understand, mm -hmm. but it's also a pretty complex product. There's a lot of different things happening in there. Um, fortunately, Actually, I had a question before you jumped into yeah, WeChat. Okay. You started off as an IM service, yes. QQ and mobile and premium. Yeah. So why acquire WeChat? Oh, well, no, uh, WeChat was developed internally. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you yeah, acquired yeah. Foxmail team. But we acquired Foxmail, yes, yeah, Alan's right. company. I think this yeah. was around 2005, yeah. and he joined us. And he worked on Mail for many, many years. And then he had the idea for WeChat. I recall it being around 2010. Yeah. And he went for it, and it was pretty successful right out of the gate. And we, we really wanted to foster... Um, a, a mobile first IM service, even okay. though QQ was very successful on mobile. It know, started off as of a mobile desktop. services. Yeah, yeah but it, we had been doing mobile since I think late 2000, you yeah. know, and we had always built um, Q, mobile QQ for all the different operating systems like Symbian or Java or whatever it was going to be. Um, but we felt like it was things were pivoting so much to mobile that we also had to have a mobile first messenger while still embracing QQ, and QQ still has yeah. a very healthy audience today. And that is something mm -hmm. very unique to Tencent, because, you know, we had Yahoo Messenger, we had AOL, yeah. but actually none of the PC messengers went to mobile first here. Yeah. But, you know, Tencent was the first to do that. Yeah, for us, we had to. It was the only way we could think of making money at scale back then. And our users demanded it. They, yeah. wanted, they were on the move. Uh, they wanted to be able to text back and forth. And so... Um, so we did that. But the WeChat point, we can talk about WeChat more, yeah. but the, I feel like just in a, in a nutshell, it, it's kind of like, a, like as an executive team and as a company, we learned so much from building QQ over the years. When we got to WeChat, it was a new platform, mm -hmm. but also you know, had some great organic growth and um, all this really um, important core interaction around it. When it came time to building value-added services around WeChat, it just came to us very naturally because we had learned so much so, uh, over like, you know, over a decade, you know, yeah. probably like 12 years of learning by the time we got to WeChat. And and we had also matured as people too. Yeah. Before we were very focused on games and more like avatar-like cute services and WeChat has plenty of that too. But we also started thinking more about the economy, more about financial services, mm -hmm. about e-commerce, about how do you really transform a business or a hospital or a government using WeChat. And I think we we had so much experience with platform services and and tying services together in a seamless way that when it came time to WeChat, it was like, okay, good, fresh platform. Yeah. Let's let's get everything right this time, or let's yeah. do some things that we couldn't pull off the last time around in QQ. Um, I feel like that was part of the thought process. Um, do you want me to talk a little bit about gaming? I think gaming. Yeah, I was wondering how did v Tencent decide yeah. to do gaming? Because part of the story. Of all the messenger. Yeah, 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 and I think it's a it's a really good example for people to yeah. to think about for us because um, uh, the thing I love about the gaming case is that. Um, the first four years of our gaming uh, attempts were characterized by utter failure. Mm -hmm. And um, Why did you decide to do gaming? Yeah. So around 2003, what we call massive multiplayer online games started becoming very popular mm -hmm. in China. Uh, have you ever played World of Warcraft before? I have heard about them. You've heard about it. it. But, you know, you, you, get, yeah. you get kind of really deep into this yeah. experience. Yeah. It's got a big software client, usually yeah. a couple gigabytes um, that you download. And then it's kind of this whole world, right? Yeah. And, you, and these were becoming, these kind of games were becoming very popular in China. And we started thinking, it is possible that users like to interact with each other so much in these worlds mm -hmm. that they're not going to want to interact via QQ anymore. Um, this could be potentially like an existential threat to us. Um, 
QQ was really text-driven at the time. Most of the interaction was a text. There was some voice, some video you could do, video instant messaging, mm -hmm. things like that, but it was predominantly text. And, and therefore, it's pretty black and white. You would go into these worlds, and you could feel like you're really deeply interacting with someone. So we felt like um, this is an existential threat for the company. We have to find ways to integrate QQ more with um, games, or else we could just be like out of the picture, mm -hmm. right? So um, it, I, I think that was before we had the idea that this could possibly make money. Mm. It was more like, if we don't do it, our users might just go into all these games and they're like, why do I want to talk to someone in QQ when I can be dressed up as an avatar and I can have like a deep, rich environmental experience? You know, it's a software environment. So we started um, trying to license games and build games ourselves. And pretty much everything we did for the first three or four years were spectacular failures. Mm -hmm. um, I thought you were going to say we're spectaculars, but spectacular no. failures. Well, I okay. mean, whether or not we liked yeah. what we did, uh, it doesn't really matter yeah. because the users didn't. So that's yeah. all that we can hear yeah. about. Yeah. That's a very important thing for Tencent. I think we can pivot fast as a company because, especially when we went to the gaming area, there's a lot of artists yeah. and designers in games, and they have something that they want to do. They want it to look a certain way. They want to have people experience a design a certain way, and that's like their goal. And for us, we've always been like, we want to find what users love. We want to find a gaming experience that they love. So if the colors need to change, if the artwork needs to change, if the design needs to change, great. Yeah. Like user, users will show you a bunch of options. We'll test those options, but show us the way. And, and that's, that's kind of in the gaming world, it's a bit of a, a different philosophy than some others that like kind of have a top-down beautiful vision for an experience and then they have to realize it. We're always like very practical, like, oh, that doesn't work. Let's, yeah. let's pivot it. Like, no worries about it. So, But you did try gaming for four years. Yeah, well, so what did work was our casual gaming experience. Mm -hmm. That's like, you know, really simple uh, card games and things like that. And we were we found quickly that that was a very nice compliment to QQ because you'd be talking, we'd be chatting on QQ. Mm. Hey, new, what's up? Yeah, nothing much. Hey, let's go play a little pool, you know, let's go play some whatever, blackjack. Okay, you know, now, now, we've, now we've found something more fun to do because typically we'd just be texting, but then it's like, hey, I haven't seen you for a yeah. while. Let's do something else yeah. in here. You know, it, it gave like the users kind of like a playground and it added a depth to the interaction. But for a long time, that was the only thing we could claim that was working. And, and uh, I have this, uh, I was very involved with our gaming strategy, uh, particularly on the international front. So um, there's nothing more exciting than going to like a gaming company in the US and saying, hey, we'd love for you to come to China. Would you like to work with us? And them saying like, no, <laughs> like, like there's not going to be any market there. It's clear, like, how, how big is your market? And we'd be like, well, we think it's going to be big. We're not too sure yet exactly how fast it'll take, but let's figure it out together. And they'd be like, yeah, I don't think so. Um, I, was, I, was, um, I was kind of, uh, I had a frustrating period as a professional um, for a while trying to find any Western companies to work with us. Hmm. I love saying that because the moral of the story is we're the largest gaming company in the world the for world. quite some time now. Yeah. I think it's been at least five years yeah, we've held that true. position. Yeah. So it's kind of like, Wow, how quickly the world can change, yeah. right? Nothing new to Silicon Valley, but, you know. But at that time, I, I lived was, through it. Yeah, yeah. So, what happened? Well, we had all these kind of uh, licenses that didn't go so great, games we built that didn't go so great. But we signed a game called Crossfire. Mm -hmm. It's a first-person shooter game, okay? You know, like, uh, shooting game. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and it just took off. Mm. And when it took off, it started making a lot of money. And that's all most people need to see. Like, they don't want to hear your argument. They don't want to hear philosophy, yeah. the whole reason why QQ is amazing and China is amazing. They just want to, you know, show me the money. 
And yeah, it just took off. And then we signed up another game called Dungeon & Fighter. And that took off too. It did really well. And I think with those two games, those were both licensed from Korea, by the Got way. Got it. With those two games, it became clear like, okay, 10 cents a player. We, we hadn't really become a leader yet. We became maybe like number four, or number five in the gaming industry. But it was clear there's something going on but with our network real and user. games. Yeah. And then these games just kept growing. They're still, they're still very yeah. popular games. Yeah. These are probably over 10 years old yeah. in the market. They're still doing very well. They, they yeah, I mean, I think great. that's what's really phenomenal about Tencent. You are yeah. at the core of it now. People recognize it as a gaming company, yet you have this amazing yeah. product called WeChat, which has actually got a lot of international attention yeah. uh, over recent years. And QQ is still strong, and you have this integration of services yeah. that just increases value to the user. So I yeah. think it's very uh, unique to see a company that was founded in 2000 yeah. or 2001 to constantly evolve yeah. as trends have changed. That's what we do. Yeah. But we, we, we still embrace the old stuff. Like, QQ is still operating. Yes, that's with right. hundreds I mean, of millions, many, yeah. many hundreds of millions of users. I, yeah. It's not, it's a little smaller than WeChat now, I believe, but it's not that it's much smaller. It's a little smaller, but yeah. not as much smaller, because yeah. WeChat itself is 890 MAU, so yeah. it's a million MAU. Maybe a little more than that. A yeah, yeah. little more yeah. now. Yeah. Okay, the last yeah. time I yeah. checked was two months ago. This, this isn't yeah. that kind of discussion, David. Yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. so, yeah, so we managed to, um, and, and we, keep, yeah. we keep moving on, and I think we, we have, uh, I can't even explain it sometimes. We do have this interesting ability to like scale quickly. Like when we see a few games that are working, we can build a model for how we uh, forecast the performance of a game, how we license the game, yeah. the templates, all the, the contracts and things like that. And then we can just like replicate it. Really um, well. Quickly. At scale. Yeah, because yeah. once our games became profitable, it's like, okay, great, let's invest yeah. in great game licenses from around the world. And then it's just about the pipeline. And the amazing thing about the China market, especially with respect to games, if I think about it very specifically, is that there's a lot of users there. And a lot of users mean there's a lot of different needs, needs for games. Yeah. And, and we haven't found a situation yet where, uh, where it feels like all the needs have been met, yeah. even though there's big successful franchises and new things coming out all the time. Um, there's, always, there's always a niche. Yeah. You know, there's another 5 million or 10 million, a group of 5 to 10 million people that want a certain kind of experience that when you deliver it to them, yeah. there's a good business there. Um, so switching gears yeah. a little bit, okay. you know, your current title is the Chief Exploration yes. Officer. What does the Chief Exploration Officer yes. do? It's a good question. Um, I wanted a title, so I've been with the company for a long time. I, I wanted a title that deliberately is always gonna make sense, no matter what I'm doing, mm -hmm. and it can suit my needs whenever. It, it was. I, I wanted it to be serious, but at the same time, I just wanted it to be like kind of a crazy title, deliberately. And um, it actually started uh, because I, I said, I, I want to be called a C-something. We had this discussion a few years ago. I was always senior executive mm. vice president. I thought, it's like, like no one thinks I'm like a C-level guy. This is really frustrating. Cause I don't care about titles at all, but I found other people cared. Even inside yeah. the company, they cared. Like, I, and I was always puzzled by that. So I kind of like, about two or three years ago, I said, okay, just give me some kind of C title. I said, well, what should that be? She'd be like, CX something. I said, that's it. See, the X, the X is cool. Like, people <laughs> like the X. I think it's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Then, it's and a then cool I thought, title. it'll be exploration, which is what I've always tried to do. So I've really always wanted my role in Tencent to be uh, going back to those days when I left Shenzhen right after our, our transaction with Tencent and I became part of the executive team and I said, okay, I'm moving to Silicon Valley we're only 45 people. We're going to have 46 people now. One of them's in Silicon Valley. Like, we're going to be a global company. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be a global company because we're going to be part of Silicon Valley. We're going to be working with all our peers here. Mm -hmm. We're going to be exposed to technology trends. We're going to be contributing. Um, we are a global company from the early days. And that was not in people's minds. For a Shenzhen-based company, 
in 2001, like not even sure if they're going to survive or not, not even sure if they could handle the China market. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like feeling a little outgunned by the Beijing and Shanghai players because, you know, Shenzhen didn't have a lot of technology. Yeah. It's like to, to say like we're going to be international. It was it was, it was kind of a new bad. idea. It was a new idea at the time. Yeah. So I've always tried to just what I consider you do, which is like pushing the frontier at Tencent in any way, like just I always want to like shake things up over there. Um, now, they've gotten a point, 17 years now I've been with the company, about four or five years ago, one thing we talk about in Tencent is that we want to use technology to improve people's lives. Mm -hmm. We want to use the internet to improve people's lives. And um, hopefully we're doing some of that with everything we do. Um, I personally always felt a little bit like there's a lot more we can do. Like I think we've, in some ways, we've kind of become very adept at understanding people's emotional needs, what the brain needs, um, mm -hmm. information, entertainment, games, education, all that, you know, music, art, all that kind of stuff. I think we're, um, we lead in those spaces in China. But I, I was always kind of thinking about our mission and like looking at the entire human being, right? Mm -hmm. And um, when you start thinking about the human being, um, uh, a couple ideas really started to resonate with me and I couldn't get them out of my head. One is that, you know, I want to see people living healthier lives. How can technology help everyday individuals live healthier lives. I just felt like um, there's so much happening with technology that can contribute to that. And if we did it as a company, even if like I'm kind of driving some of this stuff on the cutting edge, we can't be wrong. Even if we get it wrong, we can say we tried, and I think that's good for our users, it's good for our yeah. employees. It's a good use of, of our some aspect of our profits, Profit. right? You, yeah. you know, so um, it's always the right battle to be fighting, mm -hmm. right? So I felt even though it's risky, like I can I can just push this forward and like just everyone better get out of my way kind of a thing. Um, the other thing is when you think about an individual though and you want to have them live healthier lives, um, you can understand like uh, their body, their blood, uh, do they have cancer, all those kind of things. But then you also have to think about the ecosystem that the individual is living in. And, and you know, if you think about cancer, for example, you have to be very sens sensitive to like uh, thoughtful about environmental mm -hmm. circumstances, um, air pollution, mm -hmm. water, um, contaminants in water, food, I mean, what are the causes of cancer? There's so many of them that are um, traced to be like somehow environmental in nature. So I started thinking more about ecosystem impacts mm. on the individual. And, and that's how I kind of really started um, thinking about this title and this role and, and kind of uh, trying to encourage the company to go in like a very new direction, mm -hmm. which is really thinking about how can we use technology to create um, a more resilient planet. planet. I call it planetary resilience. It's a bit of a mouthful. Mm -hmm. I want to find a better way to describe this quickly to people. Um, it should be something that everyone's talking about now. So um, when I, I just started with these baseline concerns based on things that I knew at the time, um, what, what I started doing more systematically with a small team that I have, I have what's called an exploration team mm -hmm. uh, based in How Palo Alto. It's about five people. Okay. Yeah, I, like, I believe small is beautiful. Yeah. And we have a lot of people at Tencent that can support us with any specific initiative. But yeah. at least for myself and like working with a team every day, for me, it has to be like maybe no more than eight or something like that. We, we kind of thought we'll be like VCs. Mm -hmm. okay? And VCs look for great entrepreneurs and great technologies and great products and traction, right? Um, I thought we want to do that too. We love that discipline. It's something that we feel like we know pretty well and we can do a good job at. Um, always can improve, but, but I thought we should do it with a twist. We spend about half our time, roughly speaking, um, thinking about the problems mm -hmm. in the world. Okay? That might be a little different. And not really thinking about markets. That's mm -hmm. different than saying, where are the markets? Mm -hmm. you know, where's the next 
movie ticket you can sell or something like that. Um, I'm talking about problems. Like we try to forecast what are the biggest challenges the world is going to face in the coming years as, a, as like a strategic trajectory. And, and then you'll start looking at factors when you ask those questions, baseline factors like um, what does population growth look like on mm -hmm. Earth, human beings? When I invested in Tencent in 2000, 2001, the planet had 6.1 billion people. It was a different planet then. Now we're at 7.4, 7.5, mm -hmm. roughly. So in just that period of time. Yeah. And then the forecast, which looks pretty likely to be realized, will be to add another billion people in 13 years. So if you can just track and understand these types of fundamental trajectories, it gives you a lot of power to forecast the future. Because you know, all these humans, we're all gonna need to eat. Yeah, yeah. We need some fresh water. We like it when our air is clean. We need to get around, we need energy, right? And we wanna actually distribute these benefits to all, even if in an undistributed world, there's gonna be a lot of demands for these resources, let alone improving the world, right? Mm -hmm. So when you start thinking, well, that's what we really do as, as the CXO, as the Chief Exploration Officer in our team. We spend a lot of time thinking about problems on one side. Um, then on the other side, we're kind of acting like a VC, but with a little bit of a twist. So we're interested in all the latest trends. And, and we think what Tencent um, is well suited to do is work in kind of with new technologies. Mm -hmm. um, things like what, artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. um, new types of sensors. Uh, like satellites or you know there's so many kinds of yeah. sensors coming out now genetic engineering um, advances in like energy or transportation so we're interested in all those things but we want to see those technologies when our team works on these things we want to see those technologies being applied to the world's biggest challenges so it's taken us in all these kind of new directions which makes every day very exciting um, we started just thinking about agriculture mm -hmm. maybe a year or two ago and not really knowing anything about agriculture, mm -hmm. but just like when you learn about the problems and the stresses on a planetary scale, let alone local scale, you know, for agriculture, it's just completely amazing. And then you discover that the agriculture industry is, is fairly antiquated, you know, and there's a lot of uh, trends that, um, that suggest that like world agriculture and yeah. food secu security is gonna get more difficult over time, whether mm -hmm. it's like problems with fertilizer, topsoil erosion, water scarcity, um, like just loss of land, arable land, and things like this. I mean, you can just go on and yeah, on, right? Yeah. Um, the world's addiction to meat. I can go on. I yeah. can get a little political about it, um, right? <laughs> That's like, true. like, and so, and so, true. so we'll start with a problem, and then we'll 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 look for companies that we think are going to tackle uh, that thesis, and we might meet with like dozens, you know, hundreds of companies that um, don't really do it for us, or you know, we'll we'll meet with a lot of companies, and then mm -hmm. finally. Uh, you know, we hope we can find as many as possible, but f finally we'll find a few mm -hmm. that that can work out, and then we just want to keep building on on our um, experience and what we've learned and and what we're continuing to learn in these areas. So, um, so it's an area where um, I think by focusing on the problems, we're we're very willing to go into like some like an area like agriculture yeah. where we knew nothing about it, and we're kind of applying these skills. I feel like. At least myself, I was applying the same skills when we were trying to get into gaming in 2003. Yeah. So I think I left this out of the story about gaming, but when we started doing gaming, we were complete nobodies. Yeah. Like, we didn't know what questions to ask. We didn't even know how a game was built. Yeah. I didn't know that you had to have art or designers, and I thought this was really cool. Like, like I'm kind of an artistic person myself. I get to work with artists now in the gaming era. Well, it was like, I didn't even think about that when we started getting into um, games. And, and it's amazing that with a lot of determination, you can learn a lot in a short amount of time. Yeah. Maybe like to get to 50%, it, it can be pretty quick. And then like getting the last 50% is why you have to have so much mastery yeah. and artistry and like going to school and whatever you have to do. But like getting up to speed, like 
half the way, you know, for a lot of areas can be pretty quickly if you just want to do it. And I think this is a, a really important skill set that Tencent has across the board is that we've been down this road so many times, like going into new business areas, yeah. like gaming and yeah. types of gaming, yeah. that when we do the next one, like a lot of the management in the company, a lot of our executives, they have experience doing the exact same thing. So we kind of all share this operating system, like, oh, you're good in agriculture now? Like, okay, what are the key questions to ask yeah. in unit yeah. economics and all the, um, and I'm not saying it takes time to get good at it, but it, at least in terms of a willingness and a, yeah. and a culture of being like um, excited and curious to get up to speed on a lot of issues quickly, I think we have that in the company. So everyone's yeah. very supportive. and. Um, it ties together yeah. almost like, you know, that has been the theme of Tencent. It is not yeah. known as one company. It is a company right. which does, you know, really good things in many areas. And now here you are, you have an exploration team yes. uh, trying to solve, you know, real big problems. Yeah, so I would say, life. and what I want to do in Tencent with this position um, is, is say people in Tencent start thinking, yeah, like we should be doing stuff in agriculture. We've got our cloud. We've got all this, this using WeChat. So many farmers are using WeChat. Like, why don't we do that early? I want to be catalyzing those moments and finding those opportunities where these things that seem to be far off actually can rather quickly kind of merge into the, the broader ecosystem and become part of the ecosystem. But the intention of why we're doing it is very important. We're not just seeking profits, although I think agriculture is very profitable yeah. if you're playing in it in the right way. That's why everyone's getting fed yeah. for the most part, at least yeah. well, for yeah. the most part. Um, right? So, so that's really the idea there. Um, in what we're doing. So we act as a VC. We have about roughly 70 companies uh, that I'm and my team are managing directly. We have uh, more that we kind of manage with other teams. And then mm -hmm. we also have other Tencent teams doing investments in other areas, sometimes also in these kind of um, resilience-related areas. I, I tend to think my team is driving most of it, but I love it when um, other teams at Tencent also do these investments, especially in China. And uh, so, yeah, there's quite a few teams at Tencent yeah. doing investing. By the yeah. way, it's not just only my team. Yeah. We have what we call the M&A team. They're also, yeah. that's just the name from, yeah. from the past. Um, they're also doing investments. So there's, you might, a company could get contacted by one of many different investment teams at Tencent. And that's also kind of part of the philosophy of the company that we want to be very market driven. Yeah. We want to make sure that we have multiple teams uh, approaching multiple strategies. Um, in an area like we have QQ and WeChat, mm -hmm. and we have multiple teams doing investments for yeah. different reasons, and and a different team might look at it from a different perspective and and either get excited or be less excited. But in a way, it's it's uh, it's it allows our executive team to have a lot of different strategies in yeah. play in the market. Yeah, and that way we kind of have a lot of optionality. That ties it all together. Yeah, and yeah, what's I'm, actually going to happen? Yeah. going forward. Thank you so much, David. Sure, Thank thanks you for, for having joining me. us for the Q&A and yeah. uh, really appreciating you, appreciate you speaking at thanks the event. Thanks for having me today. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening. So as always, the video and transcript are at blog.ycombinator.com. And if you have a second, please subscribe and review the show. All right. See you next week.